Hello and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast with Ben Atkinson. I am delighted to be joined by Alex Manos and today we are talking about something which isn't discussed anywhere near as much as it probably should be, at least in the functional medicine world, which is mold illness or mold toxicity. Achy joints, fatigue, asthma, hay fever-like symptoms that just won't go away. The underlying cause could be mold. We discuss how it occurs, biochemical tests, symptoms, and just what to do about it. Alex is a nutritional therapist, functional medicine practitioner, and host of the Health Path podcast, and is a wealth of knowledge on this topic. I hope this information can help you or someone you know. Let's get into it. Alex Manos, thank you so much for coming on the Functional Health Podcast. How are you doing? Hi, Ben, and thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm doing really well. I'm uh, appreciating the blue sky that we've got back today. Yes, me too, actually. However, I have been struggling with the heat a little bit. I know everyone hates me for saying that, but I don't think I'm alone in that regard. No, it's definitely not recently. I think it was at the beginning of last week where we had sort of the real heat and it was, degrees. it was hard to work, that's for sure. Yeah, I was melting, melting. Um, I went into the office, which is luckily air-conditioned, um, which was much better, but I couldn't cope in here. I think, like yourself, you were saying about your office, it, it feels like a, a almost a, a bit like a greenhouse. I have a yeah. similar problem in where I work. <laughs> yeah, my, um, I'm pretty toasty right now, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you drink all you want. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Um, and it's great to, to have you on the Functional Health Show to talk about mold toxicity and something which I actually had in my cupboard and had a cup this morning was your coffee. And one thing uh, that you say on the coffee, exhale coffee, that is, shameless plug, you didn't ask me to do this, I'm just doing it anyway, um, is mycotoxin free. And I think this is something which is now a trigger word for a lot of practitioners and maybe people because there is a, there is a point in foods where there's a certain level of mycotoxins which actually seems to be fine. But in coffee, coffee seems to be one of those things where it can easily go over the the level where it can cause symptoms or problems for people. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there are definitely some key food groups that get discussed in the research that have been found to be problematic. You know, mm-hmm. coffee is absolutely one of them. Cocoa is another. So some grains, nuts and seeds, dried fruits, they can be contaminated. And obviously from a more traditional perspective we might say that our governments have our back they put regulations in place to ensure that the amount we're being exposed to is okay the problem we have is there is no research to my knowledge that has looked at multiple mycotoxins from a health perspective Mm -hmm. but we know that they're out there that there are foods with more than just one mycotoxin in we also know that these mycotoxins are lipophilic or at least some of them are And therefore, what does that mean for a lifelong consumption of some of these things? Um, So there are those kind of questions there and it can become quite daunting, you know, and a lot of the practitioners listening will know that over the years, I think it's safe to say there is an increasing anxiety when it comes to health because we're being bombarded with so much sometimes fear mongering information. Um, so I do like to then always just fall back on, you know, the positive, which is, you know, we're doing enough to maintain resiliency. You know, if we've got a good microbiome that we know is important in regards to 
the elimination of some of these kind of environmental toxins that we are being exposed to. Mm -hmm. If you're pooping daily and if you've got good nutrient status, all of these things, we're going to be able to tolerate that sort of level of exposure that we're being exposed to. But as we all know, one of um, my favorite concepts is this idea of allostatic load or allostatic overloads, the accumulative wear and tear of living as a human in an increasingly toxic world. Um, so over time, we are accumulating that wear and tear. And there's that tipping point of allostatic overload where we end up with symptoms, a diagnosis, a, a recalibration in our physiology to one of more of a dysbiotic, diseased state. Um, and if there's something that we can do as straightforward as just swapping a coffee bean um, to help lighten that load, then again, it's kind of like a no-brainer, really. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. What other foods seem to be problematic? Because I remember, I mean, this is many years ago, and this is a, a subject, admittedly, I'm not as read up on as others. Um, peanut butter, significantly higher in aflatoxin. But I, I mean, I used to eat peanut butter so much, I can't tell you, especially at university. I basically lived off the stuff. I am... Um, I'm going to tell you something which I potentially will regret is that I'd had a, a, a kilogram tub of peanut butter in my room at university with a spoon in it and the spoon stayed there. It stayed there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's uni for, you know, I remember we used to almost have bowls that would just be moving across the, <laughs> so long there was bowls just moving. <laughs> <laughs> That so yeah that that is that is a lot is peanut butter going back to the peanut butter is, <laughs> yeah. is, is that is that a problem should people be worried aware of those kinds of things i think we need to be aware of it you know and i think if there's someone who we know has a high body burden of mycotoxins then you mm. may want to be somewhat mindful of this having said that if i was to say clinically how much do i encourage slash enforce my my clients to to worry about this not that much if i'm being honest um partly because they've got enough to think about you know they're yes. struggling and there is a bit of contradictory information around the food mycotoxin piece anyway so there are some big names in the functional medicine space who are very strong in their opinion that if you have mold illness do not eat grains do not eat mushrooms do not eat x y and z's but i just haven't found that it has to be that way and i think most of us would agree that those kind of generic statements are never 100 correct they're mm -hmm. generic um so we've got to just kind of work with the client on an individual basis around what we feel might be most appropriate. So speaking to a client early this morning who has a positive mycotoxin test, um, you know, we agreed that mushrooms, yeah, go and eat mushrooms, it's fine. Um, medicinal mushrooms are antioxidant, prebiotic, anti-inflammatory, immunomodulatory, like they have so many good things. I think we can often be guilty of removing something because of one reason and forgetting the 10 reasons why we might want to add it mm -hmm. um there definitely seems to be this trend with people to want to know what they can't have um and i've definitely been there in my own health journey a lot it must be some natural human psychology thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah i get that like what can we eliminate immediately yeah and assume yeah. it's something easy and eliminate one thing when actually the overall benefit i guess the cost to benefit ratio 
is is skewed in the uh, the direction where you shouldn't eliminate that thing at all. You'd actually be doing yourself an injustice. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you know, there's there's often a, a conversation I have with clients around just a bit of reassurance and giving them mm. some you know, safety around food sometimes. Um, it's not to say, obviously, there aren't plenty of reasons and, um, and circumstances when we might want to be removing things, but, you know, we need it to be a 50-50 conversation, I think. And with regards to mold toxicity, mold illness, how does it present in people and how prevalent is it in people that you see? So, um, yeah, to answer the last question first around prevalence, I think it is really prevalent. You know, I, I kind of said, I think on a podcast a few years ago, I think it's like a secret epidemic um, because especially in the UK, we've got a lot of old properties for starters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just starting to see back then so many clients who had, and this is only my kind of own clinical experience. There'll be plenty of other examples, but most people were coming with chronic GI issues, you know, and I had numerous clients who had done sort of three, four, five, six SIBO tests. They'd gone through all of the different SIBO protocols out there and just weren't really getting anywhere. And that's always for me quite a nice type of client because it's like, okay, well, you've done all of that stuff. Let's just forget about that. Now we need to kind of think outside the box a little bit more maybe. Um, so we were inquiring around that. They knew there'd been some water leaks or there was water damage or visible mold, etc. And a lot of these people were coming back with really high mycotoxin test results. And we started to kind of detox them using the work of the likes of Dr. Krista and Dr. Neil Nathan and, and starting to get results in their gut issues, which were the reason why they were coming to see me. Um, so that kind of really opened up a whole new area of, I guess, clinical practice and another area to inquire about when working with clients. And to this day, I still see a lot of people whereby it seems to be and I use these words quite consciously, like a piece of the puzzle, because I'm probably guilty of, you know, pigeonholing some clients over years where it's like they do the test, it's positive. It's like, oh, yeah, this is like the one thing going on. Let's just detox you of this and you'll be fine. And sometimes it works like that. But obviously, health is far more complex. And there could be plenty of other things also going on that need equal amounts of attention at some point within that overall process of healing. Um, and this is why, you know, the foundations of health, which I'm sure we'll touch on at some point, is such a key part of this, even in the context of, of kind of mold illness, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, in regards to the other questions, before I forget, you know, around how this can manifest, for example, you, there's just a really broad range of things. You know, it, it can be gut related. It can be sort of cognitive related things like brain fog, for example. It can be skin-based. I've seen clients where it's things like psoriasis or dermatitis. Um, it can be more chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia-like, um, Hashimoto's. I've definitely seen the kind of connection there with some clients. So you've got this kind of, I guess, common situation really, whereby we have to go back to treat the individual, not the disease. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really matter what the label or diagnosis is for me. It's kind of like, well, what's going on in your life? What's going on in your body that might be contributing to whatever the label is? So these things can manifest in all sorts of different ways for different people for different reasons. Um, but, you know, we're just trying to look under the hood ultimately and look at that lifestyle and say, okay, well, these are the things that we need to be supporting. And then it goes back, I think, to trusting that 
innate healing capacity of the body. You know, it's quite a naturopathic principle, isn't it? What do we need to add and what do we need to remove to allow the body to heal and to be in a state of kind of vitality? Um, and it's a very simple principle. It's not necessarily easily applied, but uh, the principle is a nice one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I completely agree with you there. Something which I guess was a light bulb moment for me, but actually might not lead to anything was, do you get resolution of symptoms? Like if someone presents with Hashimoto's by dealing with the mold toxicity alone. And then I remembered as functional medicine practitioners, we'll never deal with one thing alone because you treat the patient and not the illness. So maybe that's a question that you can't really answer, but you could potentially speak to it. Yeah. And I mean, I guess the, the honest answer is you also just never know, because if you put a program together around mycotoxins, it's not like that program is only working on mycotoxins. Yes. You know, you're, you're doing overall detox. So have you detoxed other environmental toxins that you just weren't aware of, for example, which is quite likely um, you've improved gut health by doing all of these things. So it is that it's that horrible complexity <laughs> that just means that at least where I'm at in my journey, I find it really hard to get into specifics because you just don't know at the end of the day. You can only work with what you do know, and that's based on some testing and then your client's story, ultimately. And I think that's where I, the thing I love about the functional medicine approach is that functional medicine timeline and understanding to the best of our ability the chronological order of how things have progressed for a client. And if we don't have a clear understanding of that, then we can't really have a clear understanding of the best ways forwards or to giving them a prognosis, you know, speaking with a client this morning who's basically for 10 years had that nervous system that has just been massively upregulated. Um, it's going to be a while for him to get the results that he wants and that I want for him. Mm -hmm. And having that understanding that this is maybe, you know, it could be a year long, it could be two years long. We, we actually just don't know any of these things. We can't be that confident. And I think what I weirdly enjoy thing is having those conversations with clients now, which is like, I can't tell you how long this is going to be. Um, but what we can do is put a program together based on what we know and trust the process, you know, have regular check-ins, tweak the program as we need based on how you're responding. But again, come back to the principle that the body is always trying to self-organize. And it has an innate healing intelligence. Mm -hmm. So let's make sure we're giving the mind, the body, the spirit, what it needs to thrive. And let's make sure we're doing what we need to remove the things that can block that energetic flow, which fundamentally I think is what health is. It's healthy flow. It's healthy communication at every level, if that makes sense. Yes, that definitely does make sense. And I think you, I love the idea that the, the body has an innate ability to heal itself. So if you remove the things which are causing harm in the environment, yes, it might need some support, but realistically, is the body doing the work? You're just making sure it has the capacity to do it. Yeah. And, you know, you can go down all sorts of rabbit holes there, obviously, because the body also needs to feel safe. Mm -hmm. um, and it might not feel safe because of kind of more biological or physiological stuff. And obviously you can go and think about like Dr. Gupta's program and the DNRS program, which is all around sort of the amygdala um, and how these chronic stresses or chronic infections, whatever the stress is, can actually create a sense of lack of safety. And these are kind of 
therefore brain retraining programs that sometimes people go through that can be incredibly helpful within the overall healing process. But then you've got the more sort of trauma adverse childhood event um, side of human health that for me is an absolutely key part. Um, and you know, most of the clients who I speak with these days have quite high adverse childhood event scores or trauma in sort of adolescence or in adulthood that is a key part of this. Because if we go back to allostatic loads mm -hmm. and resiliency, well, we know there's a relationship between adverse childhood events and allostatic load 30 years later. Um, and we all, most of us kind of understand and appreciate that those key developmental years early on in life set the tone for health in adulthood. So, um, and again, this is a bias for every reason, these are the type of clients that come to me. So I'm often having to either refer them out to see appropriate professionals to work alongside the more physical stuff that we'll do. But it's also why, you know, I've gone into training in transformational breath work and in psychedelic therapy to try and be able to provide that more holistic approach to help people unpick all of the things that need to be unpicked if we're seeking good health. I feel I want to rabbit hole down the psych psychedelic route, but can we move on to that later? I've written it down. We're coming back to it. Because <laughs> what you said before, I think in terms of um, the allostatic load and what people experience early on in life moves quite nicely into what predisposes people to these this kind of mold toxicity, mold illness in the first place in terms of risk factors. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there is some research and discussion around genetic predispositions. So there's the um, the HLA, HLADR, I can't say that gene today, <laughs> HLADR gene um, that has been discussed as kind of a, a risk factor. It may predispose us, but it certainly doesn't mean that it's, you know, as we know with kind of epigenetics and genetics generally, it's not the be all and the end all. There are plenty of people who can have, um, robust detoxification or immunity who have a potent enough exposure to mycotoxins who are still going to fall ill mm -hmm. and actually in the research um i often cite a paper where they basically said that the main sort of risk factors were your current state of health at the time of your exposure to molds and the just the amount of exposure you know how much are you breathing in or how much you're absorbing through your skin because these mycotoxins are just that small mm -hmm. So this comes back, as you say, to kind of allostatic loads, um, to our overall resiliency. How robust are we when it comes to the environment that we're being exposed to day to day? So that's going to impact everything from what's your gut microbiome like, what's your nutrient status like, what's your inflammatory state like, um, etc. And all of these things are going to dictate how we respond to our environment. And that partly explains why if you had a family in a home, maybe only one of them falls ill as a result of that water leak and mold and mycotoxin development. So it's kind of personal and we don't always actually know how healthy we are. Um, I remember, actually, I think a colleague of mine gave me this analogy from a conference that she was at, which is if you imagine your health is just a field and how healthy you are will kind of influence where you are in the field. So surrounding the field is a ditch. And if you were standing right in the middle of that field, that's you in optimal health, whatever that means. You could, however, be standing right at the edge of the field 
And you might not feel a huge amount of difference. You know, maybe you've got a little bit more sort of fatigue, whatever it may be, but you feel like you're fairly robust. But a few nights bad sleep and infection and that wind nudges you down into the ditch that surrounds the field. And, and the ditch is the sort of metaphor of being symptomatic, being unwell. Mm-hmm. And people sometimes go, but Alex, I was really well before X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, actually, but were you? Like, do you know that for sure? We know through research, if you take 100 people off the high street, a good chunk of them are uh, sort of pre-diabetic, have elevated CRP in their blood and all sorts of other things going on. With what we think as baseline health at that population level, I'm not quite sure actually is particularly healthy. Um, so we have to be mindful of that. And that's why I think, you know, preventative medicine is, is such an important message. Go and do an MOT test once a year, look mm-hmm. under the hood, see what's going on with some of these key markers to know, are you in a fairly resilient state or not? Because we don't want the breeze to be nudging you into, into the ditch. I love that. That's a, that's a great way to visualize it. And in terms of tests, when you say an MOT, what are you referring to? What would you do yourself? Yeah, I think, you know, like even some routine bloods, it doesn't have to be anything too fancy, really. So it doesn't have to be too expensive. But certainly blood work for me would be like the routine, what at least once a year that you might want to go and do. Um, I do like organic acid testing, you know, obviously dependent on budget. Um, organic acid testing might be something else to do, depending on also the context as well. You know, it, it's going to be based on the individual and their timeline and what's going on in their lives, obviously. Um, but that would be something to consider. But then if you've got a diagnosis, that will also really shift things. So there's research showing that people with inflammatory bowel disease, leaky gut seems to precede a flare up in their condition by sometimes six months. So for that person, is there an argument that doing something like actually a leaky gut test once or twice a year to monitor things could actually be quite helpful because if they're suddenly seeing intestinal permeability present, maybe they just need to, you know, tweak their lifestyle to ensure that they're not kind of going downhill without realizing it yet. So there's all kind of different things that can come into it. And hence we come back to the lovely saying, you treat the individual, not the disease. Yes, absolutely. I um, have a not an obsession it's something i test regularly which is the omega-3 index and nice. i love getting a fatty acid profile and just vitamin d i'm very conscious of vitamin d just because of the uh, propensity um for deficiency i think mm. yeah i think those are two absolutely uh not sort of essential so to speak you know they, they're so important from an overall health perspective and um they would definitely be on the list as well you know bloods let's call it nutrient status of some kind um and then i think that for me is kind of probably where i would leave it unless there's a specific reason um you know the other thing to bear in mind is the 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 seasonal elements of things and one thing that i it's just really fascinating me at the moment is how we don't really have that data which would be so helpful so if you go and do a I know some form of cortisol test. To my knowledge, the ranges are always the same throughout the year. Um, but we know that our cortisol levels are going to fluctuate in the year, our mm-hmm. melatonin levels are going to fluctuate, our serotonin, etc. Um, and therefore, I would love to see more research kind of being done around how do these things oscillate? Because as an extreme example, those living very traditional seasonal lives like the Hazda tribe, we know that their microbiome 
oscillates wildly over the course of the year because the wet and the dry season leads to completely different diets, basically. And in the, let's get this right, in the dry season, it must be, um, their microbiome becomes a little bit more like yours or I. You know, it's a little bit more Western, as the researchers called it. Mm -hmm. But in the wet season, when they have a greater quantity of kind of plant matter, uh, there is this bloom in their microbiome that becomes way more diverse and bacteria that were literally undetectable uh, in one season are there in abundance in another season. Um, and I sometimes use that study to, again, help just reassure clients that, you know, just because we haven't found that bacteria in your gut test, you know, don't stress out about it. Um, <laughs> it might come back yes. uh, as things change, as the diet improves, as your lifestyle improves, et cetera. Um, but I just love this concept, again, that we are nature. We should be interconnected with that seasonal rhythm. Um, and there's, there is a reason why we research looking at this. We all know about the circadian rhythm, but there's also the circannual rhythm as well. Oh, no, you just opened a whole can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> please, please elaborate on that. Yeah, it's just it's around um, kind of epigenetics, basically. There's some research I've seen talking about how genetic expression changes with the seasons, which kind of is like really common sense when you think about it. Yeah. We're getting more sunshine in the summer months. We're outside more in the summer months. How is that not going to change genetic expression? Um, melatonin synthesis is going to be way more in the winter months. So we, it just it, it makes sense that we're going to have an annual rhythm to some of our physiology if we're exposing ourselves to the environment that we have evolved in, meaning we're outside enough. <laughs> um, I guess you could argue that in the modern world, most of us have lost that circannual rhythm because we're in artificial lighting, mm -hmm. whatever it may be, you know, nine to five, seven to seven, whatever it may be. And that's completely disrupting all of these things. Um, and the frustration, I guess, is for the vast majority of the population, we don't have much flexibility here. You know, and that's this is where it gets, I think, a little bit kind of tugging on the heartstrings because we've got this kind of culture and society which is just so counterproductive to optimal health. Um, we have to work inside most of us, for example. We have mm -hmm. to work nine to fives, et cetera, all these kind of barriers to optimal health. But what can we do? You know, can we sit by a window whenever it's possible and crack it open, no matter what time of year it is, just to try and get some full spectrum light through, for example? Uh, can we get off the bus a little bit earlier to get a little bit of morning sunshine, etc.? So those little wins that you know do add up, especially when we go back to the concept of allostatic load, is the little wins sometimes that over a few years mean that when we're in our 70s, we're going to be in a much better state of health as a result. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. I mean, and just from my own personal experience, I was recently in Cornwall for a week and sunny day. I was out in the sun as soon as I got up, feet to the earth, and I felt great the entire week. Yes, I was on holiday, so there's a little bit of that as well. Yeah. I didn't have work on, but I think it really affected me. And now what I do now, now what I do, sorry, is I go out for a walk every morning, which I didn't actually used to do. So sometimes it'll be wake up, I have a morning routine, which is quite ritualistic, and then I start work. But I haven't actually exposed myself to the external environment to any great degree. Um, and that has really been great, I think, for me, for my well-being, and also setting my circadian rhythm to a degree which I just wasn't doing before. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, the whole concept of grounding is such a fascinating one. The idea that, you know, there's this abundance of electrons on the Earth's surface. And when we go barefoot or bare hand, bare back, whatever it may be, we're absorbing these electrons. They're being shuttled to where they're needed and they have this antioxidant property within the body. Um, and, you know, within a few seconds, we're seeing improvement in autonomic nervous system regulation. In half an hour, there's a potent anti-inflammatory uh, impacts and you think oh my god like most of us are never connected with the earth these days um and you know if we can start to again bring that into our routine mm-hmm. um again however that might be if it needs to just be the weekend and it's just the weekend but it's like again sort of maximizing our opportunities um and that's a a huge one and if you start going into the research around this it's just it's kind of jaw-dropping and it's definitely paradigm shifting fundamentally if you think of some of the theories around oxidative stress, for example, and redox and how these are key mechanisms that regulate health, then you're like, well, actually, for free, I can just go barefoot on the ground for as long as I possibly can. And this is going to provide potent health benefits. Um, then expose as much of your skin as you can to the sun. And you've got this kind of double whammy going on where you're mm-hmm. reconnecting with two key regulators of human health. Um, so, yeah, it's cool. And they are ancestral norms. Um, something someone said to me the other day was like tree hugging actually has benefits for this reason. Yeah, you know, I think it's so it's really hard, and I'm still trying to, I guess, get my head around just how interconnected we are mm-hmm. um, with rhythms, with the season. We are nature. We are an animal, uh, and we are just over years we have become so disconnected with an ancestral natural way of living that it is now actually just alien to us fundamentally. Um, so I think there is this shift happening in our kind of, in our space where people are starting to reconnect with nature, reconnect with community, which is another kind of just foundational piece obviously to human health as well. Um, and it's really exciting, I think, to see how this kind of shift is gonna progress ultimately. You know, we've got this bloom in breath work you know now it's like this huge industry ultimately everyone's aware of the power of breath work you've got the psychedelic renaissance happening and maybe these two things are helping people reconnect with that deeper part of ourselves which is longing for nature for connection um for ritual for rites of passage for growth for you know some degree a degree of enlightenment he says with in the um, sort of exclamation marks as well um, so yeah, I think you know it's that's what we need. That's what we've had until relatively recently. Yeah, I, yeah, I completely agree. It's so strange, isn't it? I feel like we become technologically advanced, really become ingrained into to what we're doing and advancements, and even just holding our phone and having a phone with us the entire time, and then we realise that actually this isn't healthy anymore. And we, we go back to what we were doing before, which is like read a book instead of being on our phone and doing all these things and grounding and breath work and all these elements that you probably do normally. Like the, the act of being mindful. I imagine people were mindful a lot of the time when they had nothing to do. Yeah. You know, I mean, boredom was probably quite healthy. <laughs> so healthy and I mean I look back to my childhood when I had to get the train into Guildford to watch a film or something like that with friends and just look back thinking I used to get to the the train station have to have my sort of 20p coin 
go to the phone box. Mom, I'm at the station. <laughs> yeah. I have to wait there for 20 minutes with nothing to do because phones didn't exist or mobile phones didn't exist. And there was just plenty of opportunity to be with ourselves and to observe the world. And you now, I always have to giggle. I genuinely do giggle. If I ever have to get like the train standing on the platform, just looking left, looking right, 90% of people looking down on a phone and it's depressing. <laughs> um, but we're just ingrained now with that. Um, you know, we're not used to doing nothing. We don't like being bored, uh, but that is just a, a habit that has been developed. And we're being bombarded with these messages that we need more, we need to do more, we need to be successful, we need a mission in life and all of these sorts of things. And I think it can be quite destabilizing in some ways to take that step back and go, actually, I don't want to be involved with any of that. I want time to contemplate and to figure out who I am and how I relate back to nature and all of these things. And a lot can come up, I think. And I think that's another reason why so many of us stay connected and are looking down at our phones because it's in some ways can be safer than actually reflecting on where we are in life. You know, maybe we're in an unhappy job that we feel we're completely stuck in. Maybe we're in an unhappy marriage and we don't do anything about it. Maybe we have serious financial pressures. Maybe we've got trauma that we aren't yet able to sort of sit with whatever it may be distraction can be just in the sort of an adaptive response it can be a way of keeping us safe in a weird sort of way so humans are complex yeah but everything you've just mentioned though is so uh, intertwined in health like your mental health and well-being and how that affects your physiology and when just a good go all the way back to predisposing risk factors for mold illness. <laughs> <laughs> um, you spoke about inflammation and microbiome uh, dysfunction, if you will, or dysbiosis, and how that can maybe predispose someone to mold illness. But in my head, I'm thinking that can maybe detract from what's actually happening. Or do you think they're so intertwined? So what I mean by this is the microbiome dysregulation a product of the mold illness or can it be a predisposing factor for the mold illness to occur or both? Whatever um, area of health, like microbiome you want to talk about or whatever else in the body, it is connected with everything. And this is the problem I have at the moment, trying to, I guess, synthesize a whole bunch of new information that I've been learning into, I'm just going to call it like my old paradigm. Yes. Um, while also bringing in kind of the psycho-emotional, let's say psycho-neuroimmunology type area of science as well. And it becomes just a really messy soup, as I describe it sometimes. Um, but we've got to sit in that because that's the human experience. Um, the, one of the challenges is, and this is obviously just all my own stuff. I'm basically sharing like where my head's at in life. <laughs> um, but, you know, we go to blogs, we go online, we go to Dr. Google, we find these blogs that are giving very, very concise, precise, this is what's going on, this is what you need to do. And it might work for some people, but for a lot of people it doesn't. And then we go for the next protocol and the next protocol. And at some point we have to say, okay, well, this approach isn't working. We have to probably try a completely different approach, a 
let's go back to the drawing board. What is the chronological timeline of how things progress? What are your relationships like? What happened in your childhood? What was school like? Uh, you know, health is so deeply embedded in our overall story. I mean, I've worked with clients whereby they had really traumatic upbringings and they fundamentally have an underlying belief that they are not worthy of health or that getting healthier is actually going to um, separate them even more from some of their childhood friends or from their family members, for example. And that will just completely and fundamentally override anything that that person tries to do until they start to address those deep beliefs that are being held. Mm. So, and I know, you know, I'm uh, admittedly sometimes overcomplicating it. Not everyone is going to have that sort of upbringing, for example, but it's not a rare upbringing to have where these adverse childhood events are present and they're influencing both our physical health, but our behavior yes. as well. And those two things are the same thing. You know, our behavior is partly dictating our health. Um, so one of the things, one of the reasons why I went and did a diploma in transformational life coaching was because I could have a client, we could put together a program that we felt was going to be helpful. We'll do a little bit of motivation interviewing, you know, on a level of, on a scale of zero to 10, how confident are you that you can go away and do this program until we speak again in two weeks? 10, Alex, I am ready. <laughs> <laughs> two weeks later, nothing's changed. They haven't been able to do it. And there's no judgment there. I've been there myself plenty of times. Um, but then you have to ask why? You know, what's actually going on? What's preventing me from? from implementing these behavioral changes? Is there something I'm getting out of my current situation? Is there something I fear about changing my situation? Um, am I gonna lose something from my current situation? You know, there's, it does can, or can go really deep. Um, that doesn't mean we have to start there. You know, some people can come to me, put the program together, they go away and do it. And we speak three months later and wonderful. They've done everything. They're feeling 50% of the way there. We tweak things. We go away for another three months and then, you know, job done. Um, that, in my experience, is a rare situation. But, you know, for some, that is all that they need because they've got that, um, whatever you want to call it, capacity to be able to follow that program for whatever reason, ultimately. So I'm fascinated in that, the 30,000 foot view. You know, yes. Everything of human behavior, which is going to allow someone to be vibrantly well or not, because I also believe that there's plenty of people who, at least functionally, are, um, I think the technical term is smashing life, um, <laughs> but could have some positive test results that for someone else could be really debilitating for them. So, you know, what on earth is going on there that explains that? And for me, that's where you really go into the woo woo land of that's maybe where having a purpose mm -hmm. and you know, doing work that is meaningful for you, that you feel is uh, giving value to the world, gives you that, that chi, that life force, that mojo that means those things don't kind of weigh you down as much. Um, so, yeah, I think that's another really key part. Bring this back to mold. It's relevant to mold <laughs> as well. You know? Do you have a life which you feel is, is full and meaningful? Um, do you feel that you're giving back to the world or do you feel actually you're stuck in a dead end job that isn't really providing any true value? You know, there are people, I was reading an article in something recently and people being interviewed and a lot of people just like, I don't feel like my job is even particularly needed anymore. 
Mm. Um, and that's a bit kind of soul destroying and the soul is part of our health and our health journey. Um, and that needs to be nurtured in some shape or form, however that may be. Maybe we need some hobbies in the evenings or at yeah. the week we need to join a club or we need to find our tribe um, is another kind of fundamental part to that. That's fascinating. Do you think this kind of, I mean, it shows that if you having these mental difficulties, it can really affect how resilient you are to these changes. I mean, I know, and I'm so surprised we brought up a purpose ikigai and how that relates to mold, but it's so true, isn't it? If you feel you're motivated to get up in the morning and do something rather than being like dragging your heels and things like that, it means that anything that comes in your way, which is potentially negative, you're going to have less resilience to combat that thing, whether it's a mental stressor or a physical one like mold illness. Definitely. I think it's such a key part to it. Um, and I genuinely think that's, you know, I've had my own health sort of journey and I really feel like doing what I do has helped me get through some of that because I've had that sort of drive, that desire to, to do whatever it is that I'm doing at that point in my journey. Mm. Um, I think if I didn't have that, it could have been a very different outcome, even though my physiology was the, would have been the same. So, yeah, there's such an intricate relationship between all of these different things. Quick pause. We're thrilled to say that our sponsor for this podcast today is Human People. Human People is a personalized health platform set up by functionally trained doctors and nutritionists right here in the UK. And they're on a mission to give you a healthier, longer and more productive life. When we start to feel a bit tired, get aches, pains, or brain fog, it can be a challenge to work out the root cause of that problem and how we can solve it. Well, human people are offering a solution. They empower you to better understand your health issues and use AI technology to provide clear, actionable steps to help you meet your goals. Choose between blood, DNA, and gut tests to look for common nutritional deficiencies and important gene SNPs and get your personalized recommendations reviewed by a doctor and all for less than a price of your daily coffee. The quality of their supplements is excellent and their recyclable packs means no more plastic bottles filling up your cupboard. Better for you, better for the planet. Head over to humanpeople.co slash functional health and use code functional health or one word at checkout to get 10% off any of their tests. And if you purchase any of their bundles, you'll get six months of a high quality omega-3 supplement absolutely free. Feel better, live healthier, and start your journey today at humanpeople.co slash functional health. Back to the show. And going on to the environment, I've seen lots of people, I mean, we spoke about this offline a little bit, talking about how people can get predisposed um, to mold and where it where it is. And I, I think I said to you before, like it can be behind, be behind wallpaper and people have no idea it's there because you don't actually see the mold itself and when people think about mold they think mushrooms fungi growing in the corner of your room and it's not like that at all it can be i've had a client who literally had mushrooms growing right i take it all back i take it all, <laughs> I take it all back um, but yes 99 percent of the time <laughs> um it's you know another one is like you say behind wallpaper yes. under under the floor you know in that space between yeah, of course, the ceiling yeah. and the floor um, sometimes it's behind the washing machine. There's a leak there that no one's known about. Um, sometimes I've had clients whereby, you know, we all have, most of us have like a big 
book cabinet that hasn't mm -hmm. been moved in years, but they move it and then suddenly perfectly behind the book cabinet is just mold. And like I think we said off air, um, mold will be most active when it's threatened. Yes. So it's kind of just been left there. It's, it's happy mold. It might not actually be causing too much issue, but go and put some bleach on it or try and kill it and, or try and confine it. And then suddenly it's going to attack and it's going to fart out, I think as Dr. Krista says, mycotoxins. <laughs> And then we're going to inhale these mycotoxins. They're lipophilic, they're fat-loving, they can get stored in us. We start to get a higher body burden of mycotoxins. And at some point, we may start to notice symptoms develop. Our health may start to deteriorate. That might take who, who knows how long that could take. That would be based on your resiliency, how much time you're spending in that property, your current health status. But it gets to a point where you come and see a practitioner, they investigate, they go, oh, maybe we'll do a mycotoxin test. And then we're seeing this high burden of mycotoxins that mm. could be contributing to some, if not all of their symptoms. Um, so it's really hard because it can be in invisible places, obviously, as we've said. Um, I've, I had someone come in and do an evaluation of our property last week, and they were saying how um, in some properties they've gone in and I think they've had, they've been asked by like the council or something to go in and do like an evaluation. And they've sometimes pulled up like the floorboards and then there's literally just mold the entire covering of the floor. Um, you would have no idea it was there. It doesn't have to smell. So you don't have to have that damp smell to know that you've got a mold or mycotoxin issue. Um, so it's really, I think such a hard area to work in. Yes. Uh, to, to, to be a, obviously a client in because you're talking about sick building syndrome you're talking about a building that is driving some of this and that means um rehabbing the building as mm. step one um and that's can be costly that might be so costly it's not possible then what do you do they can't move out maybe they've got a mortgage or their landlord's being pushing back and saying it's not an issue um so people can get really stuck um and then you know they ask for advice just slammed the table there with my hand by accident. <laughs> um, yeah, I, com I completely resonate and also sympathize and empathize with those people which are probably going through that. With yeah. But and a point that you made, which I think is really important, is just because your house is infested with mold doesn't mean the, they are farting out mycotoxins, right, and causing a problem. Mm, yeah, so, you know, you could have, just keep it really simple, you could have someone who's got, a thousands of the molds of someone else, but that mold might be really angry. And as a result, that person is gonna have more of a problem with kind of mycotoxins. So yeah, there's no correlation between like amount of mold and mycotoxins being produced is my understanding of this. It's like mycotoxins are the defense mechanism. Um, so if you think of, you know, mycotoxins and mold, this is how we came up with antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So we've got kind of the aspergillus or whatever it was in the Petri dish. You had, I think, the bread or something, and then there was just a, a gap in the middle where the mycotoxins had been released, basically. And then you have this completely like sterile environment because they've just nuked everything. So think what happens to the microbiome in someone who's got mycotoxin illness and these mycotoxins being pushed out, sort of the liver and the bile, the gallbladder squirting the bile into the intestine, the bile's got mycotoxins there to help poop them out. But one of the things I've kind of anecdotally seen is a lot of people with mycotoxin illness have compromised microbiome diversity we're seeing kind of much lower numbers than usual and is that because they kind of have this kind of antibiotic drip almost happening as a result of these mycotoxins being dumped into the guts to poop them out 
And this is obviously where the protocols utilizing binders and probiotics as a way to help eliminate these things can be so helpful. Right. So in terms of diagnosing these, I mean, we've, spoke, we've spoken about the spectrum of kind of uh, ailments that people can present with or the clinical manifestations of them. What would be a clinical test that you would uh, do yourself in a clinical setting? And also, where would you get that test for practitioners listening? Yeah, so um, there is a urinary mycotoxin test that you can do if you want to evaluate someone's body burden, should we say, of mycotoxins. It's obviously not foolproof. There's no test that is. You know, we're looking at, I can't actually remember, I think it might be 14 mycotoxins now. There are hundreds that we're aware of. Mm -hmm. These are the ones that I guess we, A, can test, uh, and B, have been associated with health issues, so to speak. Um, so it's possible that you could get a completely negative set of results, but maybe that person was exposed to a mycotoxin that just wasn't on the test result. Right. Or in the, so there's that, I mean, it can be that sort of basic sometimes. Um, you can get it from Health Path Pro in, in a couple of weeks time, little selfish plug there. <laughs> um, there are obviously other labs that are available as well. Um, Regenerous do the Great Plains or, um, mycotoxin test, which is the one that Health Path Pro will have. Um, Nordic Labs have it. I think in vivo used to. I don't actually think in vivo have a mycotoxin test anymore from memory, but they certainly did, and everyone can check out if it's still there. Mm. I'm not quite sure. It's a different one to the Great Plains. So there used to be two that we had access to in the UK. Um, it might actually now only be Great Plains Laboratory, but certainly don't quote me on that. Um, but like we've kind of been talking about a little bit, foundations of health are so important here as well. So yes. this is the the challenge clinically, I think, where it's like, okay, you want to go and spend whatever it is, £275 on a mycotoxin test. Most people don't have the budget to go and do other testing, so you might prioritise that. But we need to be thinking about blood. You know, what's going on there that uh, might be a factor? What's going on with mitochondrial function, with nutrient status? You know, do they have the capacity to detoxify the mycotoxins in the first place, really? So sometimes we need to um layer our testing over a period of time to help from a budget perspective um that's not to say there aren't plenty of people i've helped where we've just done a mycotoxin test we've put together a program based on results symptoms their timeline and they've done really well just through that process um but if we're kind of thinking sort of gold package big picture what what could we think about doing then we want to be thinking about everything else as well, because as we've said all along today, everything's interconnected. Um, so we don't want to pigeonhole someone just into a mycotoxin issue when there might be some other things going on. My experience, and that's all it is obviously, is that the, the way I got into the mycotoxins was because loads of people coming to me with gut issues that weren't um, improving through the typical stuff we would do to improve the gut. Um, and it turned out that loads of these people had mold illness or mycotoxins. Dealing with that actually led them to be able to finally improve gut health, eradicate SIBO, etc. So sometimes the mycotoxins is the biggest piece of the puzzle. And this is the way I literally describe it to clients. It's like, all we're really saying is we know that this piece of the puzzle, mycotoxins, is part of your puzzle. That's not to say that um, Lyme or EBV or stress or whatever else isn't also something that we need to be working on 
So that's where it's, I like to ha- try and help the client take the bigger picture as well, which is this is part of it. We have no idea whether it's the biggest fish in the ponds, stealing Dr. Neil Nathan's sort of analogy here, because that's what we're trying to find, obviously, with all of our clients. What's the biggest fish in the ponds that's going to lead to the biggest shift in the needle, so to speak? It's like right. a really weird pond. but yes that's kind of like what we're always trying to do ultimately and sometimes someone's lifestyle might be so bad obviously that that's where we start because that's what's actually going to allow them to have the capacity to actually tolerate a protocol or to be able to move these mycotoxins out of the body etc so again treating the individual not the disease not the symptom not the test result uh, which i've you know been more than guilty of in my past probably as well um it's kind of easy to do but that's why I think as the practitioner as well, we've got to be as comfortable as possible in, in the gray, you know, it's kind of comfortable not knowing um, because I think it can be helpful once we get there. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I get that. And also the idea that the lab results may not test that, that highly. It may look like someone maybe has a certain amount of mold, but not that much to cause an issue. But actually what's happening is the detox pathways are just not running as efficiently as possible. So maybe mold is an issue, but they're just not excreting it to any great extent. Yeah, exactly. So um, we do know, again, more kind of anecdotally, that if you were to get a client and you did a mycotoxin test, and then you got them to do seven days of liposomal glutathione, changing nothing else, and then with another mycotoxin test, you do sometimes see very different test results, um, showing us that you know the test is partly dependent on that person's ability to detoxify mycotoxins, as you just said. Mm. So this is where, again, it's just complex. I mean, I think the more you dive into any area of health, the more you realize the complexities in test interpretation. It could be it's the same with the gut, it's the same with SIBO, et cetera. Um, so when you're looking at a set of test results, you're kind of asking, you're kind of interpreting it within the context of someone's ability to eliminate these things. So this is why on a retest, let's say three months later, results could look 10 times worse, i.e mycotoxins are way higher in the test results but that's obviously because someone's now eliminating more toxins than they were in the initial one and that might be because you've opened up those detox pathways but simply Um, it could be because there's mold that's colonized somewhere in them and you've pissed off the mold and now they're (laughs) spitting out their mycotoxins saying nope i'm sticking around thank you very much yeah um and then the question becomes, well, does this person feel better or worse? If they're feeling better, just continue. They're flushing out these toxins at a good rate. If they feel worse, then you've kind of got that, I guess, classic die-off type thing going on, whereby you're mobilizing these toxins quicker than the person can actually detox them. And as a result, they're feeling a bit worse. And you might want to back off a little bit um, and then you know, continue the process. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of kind of nuance and complexity to it all ultimately as well. Yeah, of course, of course. I think as with it, with everything. Yeah. So in terms of what people can do in terms of treating mold toxicity, have you got a I don't want to say a stepwise protocol? Obviously, everyone is different, but some considerations that you'd maybe go for first. Yeah, and I think you know I think Dr. Christ has done a great job of giving us a degree of like a stepwise process that we can consider. 
Um, I mean, obviously, step one is we need to, as much as possible, get out or limit our exposure to the environment if we're still in that multi-property. Um, and, you know, that's another challenging conversation. It's like, well, I don't know if I am. <laughs> I know I've had previous exposure. I'm not quite sure if I've got current exposure, maybe. Um, but yes, getting out if needs be. And if you're not sure and if budget allows, getting a company in to do an evaluation so you can actually have some peace of mind it can be really helpful because if you're becoming hypervigilant and you're like, I don't now know if my home is safe, it's very hard to heal and get vibrantly well if you're questioning the safety of the home, your home. Um, so that's a really important part of the process and definitely step one. Right. That's not to say that if there's kind of a little bit of a mold thing going on that someone can't get pretty well still in that property. So it's again, mm -hmm. as you can imagine, not black and white with this process. Yes. Um, and then you've got supporting really the elimination. So now let's say you turn the tap off, they're no longer being exposed to mold. We now need to kind of open the sink up and there are different ways that we can consider doing that. There's no necessarily, I would say, particular order without more context. So I'm not saying this is now like a perfect stepwise process, but binders can be considered definitely. And um, you know, these are things like your activated charcoal, your bentonite clays, your zeolites, your chlorella, psyllium husk fiber, probiotics. Uh, Dr. Krista talks about the steamed kale study. Uh, steamed kale can be helpful at binding some of these mycotoxins oh, apparently right. as well. Um, so let's not undervalue food as a way of, and fiber as a way of binding some of these things. Um, I'm pretty sure Dr. Krista is actually the biggest advocate for binders within her protocols. It's kind of some of the other people who have really pushed the concept of, of binders being essential. And bearing in mind that binders may um, contribute to nutrient deficiencies if they're taken for too long. And sometimes people are on these for years. And it's like, we really need to kind of get you off. Like some people could really become dependent on them. Maybe there's kind of a psychological thing to that where they feel a bit better or it works so well for them, they're kind of a little bit worried of coming off in case symptoms start to come back, etc. But binders can be really helpful, definitely. Um, probiotics in animal research have been shown to be really helpful. Um, in fact, I think from memory, uh, there's one using um, Lactobacillus plantarum 299V, which I've always mentioned because it's, it's one of those psychobiotics. It's good for bloating. So I often use it in kind of IBS type settings as well. Um, it has been shown to reduce kind of subjective stress and anxiety in humans. So it's a really well, it's one of the most evidenced strains of probiotic on the market, basically. Um, and these help bind and detoxify mycotoxins, as well as other environmental chemicals, you know, pesticides, herbicides and things. Our microbiome plays a really important role within that overall process. Um, antioxidants and bioflavonoids, curcumin, resveratrol, or turmeric, um, alpha-lipoic acid, CoQ10, rosemary uh, can all be really helpful. High-dose omega-3 fatty acids. Dr. Krista talks about kind of diluting the toxins. If they're found in like the cell membranes, for example, can we kind of really go in with high-dose essential fatty acids as a way to almost displace um, them in the phospholipid layer? Right. And, then, and then I theorize, I don't think I've asked Dr. Krista about this, but something like NT factor, you know, the phospholipid sort of replacement therapy type supplement mm -hmm. in theory would be helpful from this perspective as well. 
um, phosphatidylcholine in support for the biliary system, because we know that mycotoxins have been found in the bile, and we know obviously the biliary system is key from just a general detox perspective, really. So anything that can be supportive here. So Dr. Krista has said several times that if she was able to edit her book, the one thing she would do is add phosphatidylcholine to the protocol um, because it's great at thinning the bile and therefore helping the elimination of these toxins. But, you know, everything from coffee to beet to ginger um, to dandelion to sort of bitter leaves, uh, all of these things can be helpful for the biliary system. Milk thistle, NAC, uh, all have a role to play there as well, potentially. Um, antifungals or antimicrobials. Um, so that can be often any of your kind of normal go-tos, things nice. like oregano oil. Um, I do really like biocidin by Biobotanical Research. Mm -hmm. It's like a broad spectrum antimicrobial that has some other herbs and compounds in there to support detoxification, biofilms and things like this. It's a really nice product that because it's a tincture, you can kind of titrate and control the dose really nicely as well. Um, but, you know, other things would be stuff like GI Synergy by Apex is another very broad spectrum antimicrobial that has some key herbs that Dr. Karazian uh, sort of references within mold illness and mycotoxin treatments. And are you um, using these broad spectrum antimicrobials primarily because it treats multiple mycotoxins that you may not come, that may not come up in the test? Um, I haven't thought about it that way, but yes, now that you say that, that would be another reason to consider it. Um, but also because I think it, it just gives you the best chance of success in some ways as well. Yeah. Uh, both the biocidin and GI synergy do contain herbs that both Dr. Krista and Dr. Karazian both reference like individually. So you're getting that kind of breadth of support, mm. but both are good for kind of SIBO and LIBO as well. So, you know, small intestine and large intestine bacterial overgrowth. So you're, you're kind of killing two birds with one stone from that perspective. Um, biofilm disruptors, I don't use much of actually. I probably, to be honest, for two reasons. One is I just haven't done a personal deep dive into it. So I'm a little bit tentative. You know, not all biofilms are bad. Do we really know what we're doing here? Um, secondly, I'm just scarred by them. So here's a little side story, if that's okay. Great. Ben. Um, <laughs> about six years ago, I thought I would try one, just, you know, so I've had personal experience and I took it and I was just in horrific pain. No. Um, so I stopped taking it. I was like, I'm gonna try it again. So I took it again, in horrific pain, um, Abdom literally like, abdominal pain, abdominal pain, like on my back, on the floor, almost in a fetal position going, something's actually not right here admittedly I suffer like I can suffer through a lot without asking for help so I was just there <laughs> you know trying to man up so to speak. <laughs> um and I had a I had a consult and I was like I'm going to this consult I'm you know staying true to my word that I'll see this person at three in the clinic room so went along hobbled along sat there we were speaking I had this wave of heat come over me took my jumper off and there was like I'm just and I think yeah, I think I just needed some space. I'm not quite sure I knew that what about was what about what was about to happen was going to happen. Right. Went to the toilet, turned on the light to the toilet, and had to run to the sink and just projectile vomited everywhere. Oh my days! Um, what tried reaction? To yeah, like this. It was just unreal. Cleaned up a little bit. Went back into the console and was like, "I'm really sorry. I've just threw up." 
I'm going to have to um, stop the concert. And this person's face was just hilarious. She was probably like 25 and she was like, what the hell is going on? Who have I come and seen? <laughs> um, so she I kind of escorted her out when that's the bathroom, cleaned it all up. And I'm like, wow, like, I'm not sure I can recommend this product because I'm just scarred. Interestingly, I have spoken with two clients since then who have used the same product who also have had that experience. Wow. Now, there is egg in the product. So is there some very violent allergic response going on? Or did I have some horrific biofilm issue going on that um, I had suddenly you know, broken open a biofilm? My body was like, wow, get this stuff out of me. I generally, I don't know the mechanisms. Those are the two that I have theorized. But yes, as a result, I've now always been a bit like, ah, can I recommend this to someone? Um, NAC is a really well-evidenced biofilm for candor albicans. So right. I do use NAC quite a lot for partly for that kind of reason. And you don't projectile vomit. And I don't projectile vomit That's with NAC. Um, I have had sulfurous parts with NAC back in the day, <laughs> sort of sulfur issues. So, you know, we have to be careful with some of these supplements. They can definitely exacerbate things depending on what's going on for us. Um, but yes, that's a little side story, guys. Um, I hope <laughs> some of you might have chuckled at that horrific story. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm always a little bit kind of mindful of it. And I'm a, that's just like a massive bias now I have, basically. Yeah, that makes sense. I think everyone, I mean, I mentioned it to you before, like I, I've definitely overdone it, inverted quotation marks, like self-treatment when I was younger and I didn't really know what I was doing or trained <laughs> in anything. So high dose oregano oil and lots of different things, lots of binders and had a terrible time. So yeah, I think a lot of... Yeah, binders, obviously be mindful of constipation as well. They can be incredibly constipated for some people. So, you know, you definitely need to be, you need to, you need to let them know, I think, that this can happen, heads up. If it does, then obviously reach out to me and we can discuss what to do or let them know to stop it or to reduce mm -hmm. the dose. I think it's really important that if you know there's a potential thing that can happen in the wrong direction of health, that obviously we let them know. Um, and I guess that, again, that comes from personal experience of sometimes not having done that. And then the client being a bit angry or frustrated that I've asked them to take something that's meant to get them healthier and make them feel better and actually feel worse um, so it's nice to let them know that it might happen and this is kind of a bit of I don't think positive psychology but certainly maybe NLP or something you know I read a book once and they always said finish with the positive so it's not like most people do really well with the supplement but some a few people find that it can be problematic because they're left with that bit of negativity so it's like a handful of my clients have found this can be quite constipating but the majority find they're absolutely fine it actually has an impact on what's going to happen for that person, which is hilarious. And um, so our language is very powerful. That's good to know. You're making me feeling better about this podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> when we do, so we've gone through um, testing, potential treatments, and kind of health status as like key factors to consider with mold illness. In terms of lifestyle medicine, what can people do themselves to, to kind of move things along, take control of the health? Yeah, I think this is almost in some ways, uh, let's rephrase that, for some people is gonna be the most important part of this. Um, and again, it comes back to what is the quality of someone's lifestyle, so to speak, when they're coming to see us. So um, key things, nutrition, you know, what's going on with their, with their diets? Are they on 
Um, I'm just going to call it a bad diet because we're all going to have our own sort of thoughts around what this might be. But let's just say, you know, refined carbohydrates, sort of refined fats. We want to get all of these things out of the diet. We want to make sure there's appropriate amounts of fiber, arguably, if nothing else, to help bind some of these things. Plenty of color and polyphenols, plenty of healthy fats. Uh, I kind of advocate for a bit of a nose to tail type way of eating. So if they're open to it, get some organ meats in there for those kind of nutrient dense uh, food items. Um, but, and then you're gonna personalize that based on all sorts, you know, just your client's preferences. So it's hard to go too far down that. I do say that for a lot of clients, they don't necessarily have to do like a mold diet in the sense of they don't have to go grain free, mushroom free, etc. Some might, some don't. And, I, and I'm always mindful that any of those sort of generic statements that someone has to do this because they've got a label mm. is always a little bit vague and doesn't make much sense when we know where the research is going in regards to kind of personalization. Um, so diets, you know, and, and nothing else, get the basics right. <laughs> um, movement. You know, movement is fundamental. So many of our genes are regulated via movement. Uh, we are designed to move throughout the day. And this is just a kind of, I like the word, although it's not particularly helpful, non-negotiable, um, <laughs> but it has to be negotiable. <laughs> um, so movement, again, absolutely paramount. And like we said previously, this isn't going to the gym three, four times a week for an hour. This is getting off your chair hourly and moving. Uh, even if it's for 60 seconds, even if it's a quick stretch, even if it's stretching while sitting down, just getting that body moving as frequently as we possibly can. And, you know, we all know why and the reasons behind that is going to be the lymphatic system, which is fundamental to mycotoxin treatment, along with dealing with viruses and parasites and all sorts of other things. But um, it's going to be having an impact on circulation, you know, how many of our clients have poor circulation and all sorts of other things ultimately. Um, sweating is kind of a big one, you know, you could go down a tangent of just how powerful the sauna is as a form of medicine, um, you know, whether that's related to neurodegenerative type conditions, whether that's the immune system, etc. So sweating, however you can do it. If you've got access to a sort of break, go and do that as almost as frequently as you want to. Um, if you don't, if you, if you if your health allows, sweat via exercise. Um, if you have to wear more clothing to induce a sweat, then maybe that's fine. Um, or take a hot bath and get your sweat on that way if you can't sweat through exercise. You know, how many of, well, I won't make assumptions, a lot of my clients are always the cold ones in the room, which I just find fascinating. They're the ones that are in the jumpers when everyone else is in the t-shirts. They're the ones whose hands and feet are like ice bricks when they get into bed with their partner. And it's there's in one of the most common themes that I've seen in clinic throughout the years. And again, you could argue lots of different reasons why that might be. There could be a thyroid thing. It could be a mitochondrial thing. It could be a nitric oxide thing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but circulation is important because if we're not getting blood flow there we're not getting oxygen there we're not getting nutrients there and then at a cellular level those cells aren't going to be as healthy as they need to be so you know fungal toenails red flag that someone's circulation is not very good um so things like this become the foundations it also means that maybe you're not getting enough circulation to the brain maybe that could explain some of the brain fog and the poor concentration word recall that often goes with some of these conditions as well um so movement sweating 
get the diet right, whatever that may be for the individual based on preferences and everything else. You know, they could have SIBO, which means that they might need to be on a bit of a low FODMAP style type thing just to manage symptoms, depending on what people's thoughts are around that side of kind of treating the gut. Um, stress management obviously is just paramount. This is a no brainer, but what's driving some of that stress and some of those behavioral challenges um, I think is really important. I mean, I'm such a, I'm fascinated by kind of the mind body connection ultimately as people can probably guess. Um, so there needs no. to be kind of exploration there as well. Um, what am I missing? I'm definitely missing something. Oh, circadian biology. That would be the final big thing I think really. And this again is just so important to focus on. It needs to be one of the most, uh, thought about things ultimately um our circadian biology regulates everything you know everything's got a circadian rhythm to it to some degree i probably um should rephrase that a little bit but you know what i mean um so things that can help with this would be getting outside and getting some full spectrum sunshine even on a cloudy day because that full spectrum is obviously still there mm -hmm. as early as you can um, you know, sometimes in the year, that means you're going to comfortably be able to see the sunrise, probably at this time of year, it's probably a bit challenging for a lot of us. But if you're able to, fantastic, witness the sunset as frequently as you can. You've got these two key times in the day to help set that circadian rhythm, because light is the key regulator of our circadian biology. And if you go and look into the research around circadian biology these days, you'll find it connected with most conditions, you know, I saw a paper the other day around reflux and circadian sort of medicine. Um, so for me, this is the absolute foundation of human health. Tied in with that is movement. You know, that's another way that we can regulate circadian rhythm. So a bit of movement in the morning, it can be really helpful. That doesn't mean go and smash out a session in the gym and lift 200 kilograms necessarily. A walk around the park or a walk around the block or doing some stretching in the garden, all of these things are gonna help. So you can, I guess it's a James Clear type thing of stacking your habits. You know, how many things can you do at the same time to get the, the biggest bang for your buck, so to speak. Um, and then time-restricted feeding. Again, it's just a foundational tool to this. So can you have that minimum of 12 hour eating window or fasting window really, if we're thinking about minimum, um, as a way to entrain that circadian rhythm. So think about light, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, we have blocking the blue light. Mm -hmm. Try and limit your technology use. If you're gonna use technology, download an app for your laptop so it's blocking some of the blue light or get some blue light blocking glasses if you wanna watch a little bit of Netflix. Um, this is so important. And I think we're just starting to see how important it is. Go to PubMed, put in photobiomodulation and see what comes up. Uh, you know, photobiomodulation or low level laser therapy we're starting to think about kind of, you know, our infrared lamps and this type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Research behind it for all sorts, mitochondrial function, neuroregeneration, um, improving microbiome diversity, increasing keystone species like acromansia, reducing pain, speeding up recovery, improving circulation. Uh, you know, light therapy is one of the absolute future medicines that we used to do and we used to understand how powerful it was. And it's one of those things that we've kind of forgotten along the way. 
Um, it's like Dr. Gerald Pollack's lab at the University of Washington, who he talks about fourth phase water. Yes. Uh, you know, this, this gel-like water that forms in our cells that is the battery um, and is charged via light, infrared in particular. And it forms this exclusion zone within our cells. And it's a fascinating paradigm shifting area of science, which gets us to have to rethink some of our hard held beliefs around human health and our potential, I guess, ultimately. His lab is close to being closed down because there's no money to be made from saying that getting outside in sunshine is one of the most important things for our health. So no one's going to invest in it ultimately. So um, I received an email earlier today around you know, asking people to kind of donate to keep the lab afloat. And some of his work is, I just think, so fundamental to this, which takes us back really to connecting with nature, connecting with the seasons, trying to live seasonally. Um, you, you go down this rabbit hole and there's a conversation around, um, you know, how many of our clients are aiming for 30 different plant foods a week, but eating the same 30 foods each week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I am guilty of that. Yeah, most of us yeah. are. <laughs> um, you know, it's hard to do in the modern world to actually get to, I mean, it depends what you're counting as one. I'm going to count apples as one, whether it's a Granny Smith or a Pink Lady or whatever the names are. Um, so some people actually count that maybe as two. Uh, if we count it as one, it's quite hard, I would say, to certainly get over 40 um, different if you're just shopping in the supermarket, mm. for example. So, you know, it's hard. Um, but if we focused on seasonal eating, how does that start to shift things? You know, if we think that what's happening in the mitochondria is reverse photosynthesis, you know, the plant is taking sunlight, it's growing, it's making macromolecules from that energy. We eat the plant or the animal, we're breaking it down, we're releasing that sunlight into the cell, and then that is how we're creating our energy. Uh, that's what's basically going on. We are light, we utilize light, we get light, that's our primary source of energy, some people will say. So from that perspective, when studies show us that 90% of us in the UK live inside, uh, in the day as a sort of a percentage of obviously 24 hours we have a fundamental problem here for human health and how long has that been going on you know what's the time frame of artificial lighting mm. i getting probably get this really wrong 100 <laughs> 150 years something really short within our evolution um it could this be another reason why we're seeing these epidemics and disease yes we've got our are issues with refined carbs and sugars and processed sugars and refined fats and these sorts of things. There's the dietary explanation, which is valid, but then there is also maybe the sort of the light explanation, the artificial light and the technology. There is the sedentary nature of our living, which is very new, um, again, from an evolutionary perspective. Um, there's all sorts of things. We've just created this complete environment of issues. Yeah, and some of this research is truly fascinating. The circadian with circadian rhythmicity of like the pancreas, for example, and insulin secretion and insulin sensitivity, and all these things are interlinked. Yeah. Um, you made me think of something before. I actually felt really good about myself when I was on holiday because I slept, had a good amount of sleep, woke up, put my feet to the earth, and did uh, exercise outside in the sun on grass. I was like, I am basically the healthiest human alive right now. <laughs> And uh, just to touch upon the, the red light therapy, I came across a company called Red Light Rising and I'm desperate to try 
photobiomodulation and the red light therapy because it's something which I've looked into and things like skin health, mitochondrial health, all these things. I mean, it touches upon everything and just resonate with what you're saying. Light is so ingrained in our in our physiology and our ancestry that it's no wonder that it has so many health benefits. Yeah, I mean, life is literally dependent on light. You know, the only reason we're here is because of light. And it's really hard to emphasize that point enough in some ways. And I was amazed, I, I'm, I'm mindful of time and that I'm kind of ranting a little bit, but I just <laughs> love topics. But um, I watched a, a documentary not that long ago with Dr. Brian Cox. Yes. Um, I think it was maybe Channel 4. I think it was called The Universe. And it was the first episode where he referred to the suns in our universe as the true gods, mm. because they are what have basically created life on our planet, for example. But he spoke about how, from a dietary perspective, what's happening in ourselves is the liberation of that sunlight. And I just love that concept that we're breaking down our food and liberating that light that has been stored in it. Um, and go and listen to some of Zach Bush's recent episodes on podcasts he's been on and he talks about this um quite a lot in regards to how we are light creatures ultimately uh, and we have to reconnect with that way of living however that may be i appreciate it's hard for pretty much all of us ultimately but little things can you have five minutes drinking your cup of tea or coffee in the morning either outside in the garden or by a door that's open or by a window that is open you know can you wait on the train station platform not underneath the the ceiling kind of rack a little bit you know if it's not wet obviously can we just start or to 40 make degree yeah or 40 <laughs> um so you know there's little changes just don't let perfection get in the way of kind of better it comes back to that sort of principle ultimately love that i'm also very conscious of time this has been absolutely wonderful but one thing that we did bring up before that i want to touch upon now is psychedelic therapy please explain what brought you into that field and why you're interested yeah, I mean, um, so this is partly, I think, just I was called into it is the easiest way to describe it. So um, to try and cut a long story short, I listened to a podcast, um, the Aubrey Marcus podcast, and uh, there's a guy who went on and was sharing a recent ayahuasca experience he had in the jungle. And I, at that point in time, and this is only, I think, 2018, I knew nothing about psychedelics, like literally really nothing. And I was just like, what is this guy talking about? Like everyone just vomiting together and hallucinating. And I, it was just like the most bizarre experience I'd ever heard about. And then it, I think it was 2018, maybe 2019, when Michael Pollan's book, How to yes. Change Your Mind came out, which just exploded. And that's when people like me became aware of psychedelics basically. And I read it and I just had the most overwhelming desire to explore it ultimately there was just a deep resonance of Alex you need to go and try this so I started researching around I found a retreat in Netherlands mm -hmm. um, I wanted to do it in kind of a legal safe setting yes. um, because well a I've never done it before Kate my wife was a little bit kind of anxious about me doing it so we're both like okay well let's find somewhere that we're both happy I'm going to to have this experience basically and synthesis was the one that just resonated you know and that's in all honesty, partly a marketing thing. Um, I just liked the way they laid out their retreats and et cetera. Um, so 2019, went and had that. Uh, at the, big, um, the morning of the ceremony, there's a breathwork session to kind of just drop you into that kind of state, partly. 
Um, never had done breath work before. Right. Had the most beautiful experience, laughing, crying. I'm not a laugher, I'm not a crier or back then. <laughs> I, I wasn't. So this was like, I cried because I was like, I haven't felt that much joy since childhood. Like I was laughing like a little kid, full body laughing, yeah. giggling away. And I was like, how have I not been told that my breath can facilitate such a beautiful experience that it's just at the tip of our fingers and toes and it was just that weekend changed my life I mean I'm coming towards the end of my training in transformational breath work I am on Tuesday morning jumping on the Eurostar to finish off my training as a psychedelic practitioner so I'm going on a 10-day immersion retreats where I'll be taking part in a couple of psilocybin ceremonies and facilitating mm -hmm. one as well and you know that's all come from a desire and a calling uh, but also knowing that so many of the type of client I see will benefit from breath work and will benefit from if nothing else having a conversation with someone who understands and has experience with psychedelics you know I'm not obviously planning on doing this underground illegally in the UK I do plan on taking part in facilitating it retreats in the likes of Netherlands and Portugal. And I want to be able to have those conversations with clients around, you know, these are the places that I trust and respect if you do want to go and consider this. And the transformational breathwork is a great tool to help people prepare for psychedelic experiences if they haven't had one before, because breathwork is a way to create an altered state of consciousness. And sometimes that can be quite similar to the experiences that you can have when taking a sort of a traditional psychedelic. So they go really well together. Um, so that's kind of part of my vision, ultimately. It's bringing in these sorts of therapies to help clients who might have mold illness, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, whatever it may be, but also may have adverse child offense and trauma, which is contributing to why they're in the state of physical health that they are in as well and wanting to just provide that truly holistic approach to healing amazing i mean i i personally have come across this i came across it first in 2016 it was a lecturer at king's college london um, and they were talking about how they're using psilocybin in a study for mental health and then it's just been a door that's been open ever since for me. I think it's the evolution of medicine. I think it's becoming more mainstream and hopefully one day it will be accepted in the UK and people can actually have access to, access to it. People who need it, that is, in a professional environment. Yeah, and you know, there's, I mean, there are so many people- I say need, I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna change that. <laughs> because there's many ways that people can access like you said breath work they can have similar experiences i'm i'm not sure people actually need this but i think it's a therapy that can be highly effective for some individuals in some cases there you go correct yeah <laughs> no i think you know it's, it's 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 really well put and you know i have a massive bias and sometimes i get carried away and will maybe say things that i wouldn't if i wasn't carried away yes so the idea of um there's, there is, let's put it this way, there's part of me that thinks most people need this experience, but that's obviously a massive biased statement. I do think most of us need an outlet for altered states of consciousness. Um, I think it's part of our evolution. There's some fascinating research even actually about psilocybin from an evolutionary perspective. Um, but, and it is, it's part of how we've 
got to where we are and it was just cut off you know in the early 70s when it came, became illegal for various reasons that obviously we don't have to go into today but um, I do think that what we're missing in society partly is you know things like a rite of passage for our adolescents and that doesn't have to be psychedelics obviously that can be all sorts of different things that can be a vision quest um, that can be um, that can be breath work that can be going and doing it like a men's retreat for example and doing what men do on men's retreats and these sorts of things but it's something that's missing and it's something that has been fundamental so anyone in sort of like the men's space doing men's work often talk about this idea of the importance of the rites of passage to become mm. a you know a whatever you want to call it a mature masculine for example or a mature man who is grounded in his energy um, and is not in a toxic relationship with the world with the environment with his feminine and all of these sorts of things um, and psychedelics is just one of those tools obviously dancing can be another way to get into these altered states of consciousness so you've got things like five rhythms that have been created that some people that would be their kind of medicine so to speak um, so it's definitely not for everyone um, but it is something that should be available to everyone is probably the way to put it i completely agree this has been eye-opening I've got one more question before we finish, and that is, what is the most impactful health change that you have made in your life and why? Um, oh, one. Can I only have one? It's only one. <laughs> <laughs> um, How many do you want? I, you cut off at two. <laughs> I think it's two, probably. Okay. One would be uh, realigning light. You know, I'm not necessarily sure I would do this if I didn't have a 16 month old right now, but I've been up at four quite a lot recently, which means I've been able to be outside at sunrise. And it is a beautiful thing. Uh, and I genuinely feel like my battery is being recharged. And I think if I wasn't doing this, I'm not sure I'd be in the state of health I'm in now from having had such little sleep over a period of time. So I think it's been a real kind of crutch or whatever you want to call it for me, but it's been huge and I really look forward to just being outside and connecting with full spectrum light um, and it's improved things in other ways obviously as well but the health benefits are just we've discussed so the second thing that um, I think came to mind was just sort of retraining myself to nasal breathe so taping my mouth at night when I'm sleeping uh, you know I've had a broken nose I've probably got some other stuff going on in my nose quite frankly um, but I was a real mouth breather for most of my life. And I'm having to sort of very much retrain myself there. I have a long history of histamine intolerance type issues. So I've had sinusitis stuff, which has led to obviously, again, mouth breathing. But I've noticed that I sleep much deeper. I dream better. I recall my dreams better. I wake more refreshed. My energy is better. My cognition is better. So nasal breathing and sunlight are probably the two most significant things for me. Amazing. Alex Manos, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I will link to everything that we've spoken about in the show notes. And I do hope that we can do this again soon. I would love to. Thank you for listening to me ramble on quite a lot then. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. 
If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook or our website and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for all the editing and thank you all for your support.